Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Edward Bulwer-Lytton and William Harrison Ainsworth aren't household names, and yet they're authors who, in the 1830s and 1840s, often outsold Charles Dickens. Why Dickens' novels have endured in the popular consciousness while Bulwer-Lytton's and Ainsworth's have been relegated to courses on Victorian literature is a fundamentally unanswerable question, though writing a story about Christmas couldn't have hurt. But knowing what will grab eyeballs is much easier now, in an era when everything about our digital reading and viewing experiences is measured. In our April issue, Christian Lorenzen considers what is lost when the algorithm dictates which aspects of culture get covered. I spoke with Lorenzen about his essay and the larger role of criticism now. So in the spirit of your piece, mm-hmm. I wanted to begin with maybe a, a question that a critical question. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so you begin your piece with Alex and Wendy, this hypothetical couple, and it's a, it's maybe a little patronizing. Sure. Um, is it, it where is that patronizing sense sort of coming from? Is it like a Dick and Jane sort of a thing, or is it something that literally you were told? I imagine them as a sort of people that editors imagine filling out a questionnaire about what they want to read in a publication Mm. and also just the sort of people who are imagined who everything they read or watch or see they get from Twitter or Facebook Mm. a few of my friends who read the piece before it came out said one thing about your piece that's wrong is when you say that you don't believe that Alex and Wendy exist in the first part. Yes. Uh, because not only do they exist, but they constitute the majority of population of several Brooklyn neighborhoods. Yes. As well <laughs> as many other similar neighborhoods in uh, cities throughout the U.S. and possibly even the entire English-speaking world. I don't think that's true because I... A, I created them as caricatures, and B, they can't exist because the first sentence is Alex and Wendy love culture, and if that is true, then everything else about them is false. Uh, <laughs> um, there's something not wrong about that depiction, as your friends have pointed out, but there's also... It's something that could easily happen to anyone Mm. if they're not really paying attention. And of course, if there is not an effort by publications to address the problems that you're raising, you know, every couple of years, someone points this out. However, no one is doing anything about it. No one is actually addressing the problem of... How do you deal with criticism in a medium that, you know, the internet fundamentally is disinterested Mm. with that medium? Well, yeah, one of the, someone pointed out that a funny response to my piece is that everyone has said either, this is great or this is garbage, Ah, yes. (laughs) you know? And so that kind of binary is um, the trap when you're restricted to 140 characters. 280 Um, characters. Although... Or to get people to pay attention. Or to, yeah, just to get people to, to link through. What this piece is about is about the big mainstream places, particularly the New York Times, 
and the question of holding the line of seriousness. Now, there are magazines like this one, uh, magazines like the London Review of Books or the New York Review of Books or The Nation or The New Republic or The Atlantic that are holding the line. Um, and, you know, every few years, somebody starts a new publication, whether it's in print or uh, online, that keep carrying the torch of being serious about these things. What's worrying is when the discourse about literature in a place like the New York Times starts to resemble something like self-help um, or entertainment. Right. And I mean, why is it, because as you say, there are other people who come along to sort of maybe pick up the slack. Why is it dangerous when it's the New York Times? Because they might... Well, because they are the cosmopolitan uh, newspaper with the most money. And they, in a large way, dictate the culture to the rest of the country. And not everybody who isn't already plugged in to the intellectual and literary world is going to be aware of magazines like N Plus One or The Point, unless maybe the New York Times is pointing them in that direction. And if instead the New York Times is obsessed with television, um, then that's where the culture is going to go. It's funny, I was reading uh, David Foster Wallace's famous uh, essay on television and U.S. fiction from, I think, around 1991 or 1992. And he begins with a reading of the New York Times art section in which several of the writers are irritated at television's pernicious influence on books and music and, uh, you know, MTV at the time. I think he quotes writers who are still going, Janet Maslin and Stephen Holden. Mm. And if you compare that to the issue that I was reading on Saturday at brunch, it's a completely different situation because television, I mean, and television has been the dominant medium since it began, but now it's dominant. And the intellectual and media worlds have pretty much acquiesced to its dominance. So I, I guess what I'm calling for is a hostility on the part of intellectuals and literary people towards the dominant culture. So much of the internet is this idea, oh, it's democratization of media, it's going to break open all these different barriers and location won't matter. And again and again, it seems that it's just the people who have always been number one. It's the paper of record. The New York Times is still setting the tone in so many different ways, and people are still looking to it. And there's fewer and fewer local papers to really mm -hmm. fill those gaps mm -hmm. as well. Uh, not talking about cosmopolitan elites uh, for a yeah. second, but like there's so much falseness in the, there's a, there, the false promise of the internet is becoming more and more um, apparent. Well, in I guess situations the, like the these. initial dream of the internet uh, was that 
millions and millions of subcultures would bloom. Mm -hmm. People would find each other. And that has been true. It was true initially. Um, and it was true in a kind of glorious amateur way. If you think of like what the internet looked like in the late 1990s when I first saw it and people with their heavily almost childish GeoCities pages and whatever. Yes. <laughs> but more and more, it seems to be directing us towards what you'd have to call monoculture. And I think the duty of people who want just a serious, rich, intellectual life is to resist that monoculture. And I think that books and literature are the obvious place to begin. Um, I And here, I mean, one, people often talk about the relevance of poetry in, in um, modern times, but if you look closely at the world of American poetry, uh, it's really a sprawling and thriving and and um, and diverse and very interesting subculture. But few of the big places take notice unless some genius comes along like, say, Patricia Lockwood. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I'm my piece is really just trying to be an issue or to issue a call to arms to not to use a military metaphor, but you know, to, to, uh, keep attention on things like that. Yeah. Because there is this danger now and I, you can kind of see it in different strands of criticism where, the criticism is clearly written for people who are already fans of that medium. Mm, yeah. And there's a lot of, there's, there's well, sort of good to I, that. I think that, I think that, uh, I've tried to think about the difference between the way a critic approaches something and the way a fan approaches something. Mm. Now, a f an approach of fandom, and I've been accused of this a couple of times in my criticism, think particularly when I write about say Don DeLillo um, a fan tends to be obsessed with trivia mm -hmm. tends to be just enjoy the compilation of details mm -hmm. and tends to suspend what are the really the true mission of criticism which is analysis and evaluation mm -hmm. um, just because the state of being a fan, and you know, I'm I'm a fan of the Boston Red Sox. I can recite many statistics from their glorious 1986 American League Championship season. I think Jim Rice batted 324 that year. Um, a fan begins from a state of suspending issues like evaluation and and analysis because he proceeds from um a state of love hey which is okay i mean yeah i mean things are going to be like that but everything shouldn't be like that right i was wondering and this is you know obviously we've been undergoing a generational shift lately and and i'm 42 and the generation under me it's 
possible that their first really serious or you know or meaningful relationship to books began with Harry Potter right right so that's an initiation into reading that begins in fandom mm -hmm. and um, that may be part of the new approach to culture I don't I don't know I, I I'm strange because I think I began reading biographies of baseball players and a little bit of science fiction and then went straight to Austin and Tolstoy. <laughs> well, I think that's actually a very common trajectory. Okay. If you just talk to people, no. <laughs> I never read much children's lit or young adult lit is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, I, no, I understand. I didn't feel like that industry was nowhere near what it is today yeah. and particularly with there wasn't that much adult attention on it, right. which is where the, the phenomenon of adults reading young adult fiction is just bizarre to me. It is super weird to me. And of course, there's going to be all this insane drama yeah. in their weird little subculture yeah. because it's a bunch of adults fighting about <laughs> kids stuff. Um, well, not just kids stuff, teenagers and what is right for the youth, et cetera. Right. But to me, sort of the economy of this is so important because there is because with a fan you get somebody who is almost you know 99% of the time going to be positive yeah and that's really well and just wants to collect everything exactly yeah. they're going to get early access I, I, I mean in literature I also try to be a completist I'm sometimes a, a completist about writers that I don't even like just because I I think when I was in sixth grade, my teacher asked me what my goal in life was, and I said to know everything. But of course, you can't do that. So now, once I realize you can know, you can one thing you can know is everything that a, a certain writer wrote. So yeah, I try. I try to do that. It, that's one of my approaches to literary criticism. Right, and this sort of relates to the the YA phenomenon. Is that because there is so much money and attention going toward these series and that there's not only books, there's this whole universe of films and that mm. there's so much extra textual stuff going yeah. on and that it's like, obviously synergy existed in the 80s, whatever. Like it's been, this, this phenomenon has been going on for a long time, but now it's reached this huge apex where you know at any time of the day you can go online and you can read something by somebody who also loves harry potter who all who maybe wrote like a weird fanfic about oh, it like yeah. there's so many different avenues to getting into that i mean 50 shades of gray was right. like twilight it's, fanfic yeah, and like yeah. this is in the fact that that has its own sort of universe of films and its own stuff it's just there because the internet can never be full, right? right. It's, it's never yeah. ending. It's a never ending library. So that, but there's still this human tendency to want to kind of fill it up. Yeah. And so, and also comprehend it all. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Just like you as a child um, <laughs> who doesn't want to know everything. It's a real problem when it comes to avoiding this monoculture and avoiding seriousness and really taking on well, aesthetic and political ideas that are in these texts because you could just get a fan and they'd be like yeah beyonce's album's great right negativity has to be part of any equation like that because yeah. you need to be able to tell the difference between 
something that's great and something that isn't. Right, or equivocation. Yeah. That, um, that they're... Or, yeah, or something that's... Uh, there's. I actually find nothing more wonderful to read than a really flawed masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And the flaws are often the most interesting thing about such a work. And so it's not simply a matter of being hostile when the time comes for it. It's also a matter of developing various critical frameworks with which to understand what's going on. And when your framework is a top 10 list, it's simply not going to give us a real understanding of art or literature. Right. And I mean, lists also, I have to say, strike me as kind of a masculine thing where uh-huh. it is this ranking and I have really no interest in list making, but I know so many men who are and they're interesting. Huh. It's like, well, with baseball, you have uh, a World Series and that team clearly won as opposed to art where it's like, well, nobody really wins. <laughs> nobody yeah. can win. But it's funny. We I've, been reading, <laughs> I've been reading this author, Gerald Murnane, who who uh, is obsessed with horse racing uh. and thinks of literature as well as sex as a horse race. Uh, yet it's never really a matter of who wins in in his metaphor for it. It's more the the, the gallop and the and the the speed and the, the I don't I don't know the contestation rather than the than the coming out on top. Although his father was often ruined by his gambling debt so I guess it, it does factor in somewhat um, but well I mean lists they're easy enough to ignore ex- except when they take over everything right um, and right now I think there's a I, I tend to think these things are cyclical and right now we're in a cycle where the list is approaching a a level of dangerous and annoying dominance. Yeah. So hopefully that cycle will turn around. Yeah. And we'll move towards a more discursive mode rather than a mode of itemization. Mm. Well, I mean, and you bring this up in your piece, and I think that it is a huge factor that often goes unspoken, but this issue of time. Mm. What is worth my time? There are so many things. What should I give my time to? Or what, it, I don't want to say it's like childlike, but it does feel like this weird sort of repercussion of the financial crisis, but then also the rise of technology where it's like everything is coming at you all the time. Yeah. What is going to be the thing that you spend your time with? Right. And you have you have now with television, suddenly 10 hours of a show will be 13. Unle- 13 <laughs> yes. hours of a show will be unleashed all at once. Right. And the internet would tell you that many people are actually spending their entire weekend watching just that. Yeah. I think there's probably a men- I'm a freelance writer, so I could have a lot of freedom with my time. Mm-hmm. But I used to have a nine to five or very time consuming jobs. 
these were never my issues, but I sense that they're out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a very good friend from high school who works at, in, a, in a highly demanding and demanding industry, let's say, and uh, only has time to read on a train into work and back. And uh, I hadn't seen him in a few years when we had lunch and he told me that he was picking novels to read exclusively through the winners of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. And I think that was it. So I, I gave him my own list of ah. recommendations, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm um, in principle opposed to such things. Even he was getting a sense that that wasn't a way to, a satisfying way to read. And whether, you know, criticism is one thing, but most books lead you to the next book in one way or another. It can be hard, but most readers, I think, are more like the Alex and Wendy that I portray at the end of the piece and follow an organic path through culture where it's culture that leads them to the next piece of art or literature or music rather than the algorithm. Not not to mention their friends. Yes. Of course, I think social circles are so important for this type of thing and just like the act of going to a movie and then coming out with your friends and having a discussion as opposed to just like mainlining shit in your bed, isolated, ordering seamless, like that's a very grim, again, a grim portrait, but who amongst us has not done this? Uh, (laughs) How do you formulate that organic path in, again, this is a fundamentally inorganic media environment where even if you type something into Google, it's going to be sort of predicated in what you have searched for before and where your geographic location. And obviously, I'm not saying that Google is the only way to find things, but it is Well, kind of uh, the last everywhere. time I visited this office, I uh, went around the corner to Mercer Street Books and I had just finished closing this piece. And I walked in and I saw a book I'd never seen before called The Rise and Fall of the Man of Letters by a a journalist, uh, I think an English journalist called John Gross. And I really regretted that I hadn't hadn't read it because it it really, uh, the bit of history about book reviews and things that I do, that book actually laid it all out from the founding of the Edinburgh Review uh, I think about up to the 1960s. So, you know, bookstores, bookshelves, the physicality of things, these are still very important and we're losing them. But I think, you know, God bless booksellers. They're trying to hold the line and, and keep up and, um, I don't pay her too much attention, but I'm a bit horrified by the mentality of throwing out all your books uh, that Marie Kondo has started. <laughs> but, Look, uh, she just says throw out the ones you don't want to read. It's not right. saying throw out all the books. This is yeah. a clear misunderstanding. Well, I don't know. I keep <laughs> I keep around a lot of books that I have had for years but haven't read yet, and then every now and then I read such a book, and it's like it's as if it was a time bomb sitting in my room waiting for me to finally discover it. Yeah. And then soon enough, I've lent it out to somebody else. 
yeah, hardly anyone ever comes over to my house and doesn't leave with a, with a present of a book. You mentioned libraries too. Yeah, and that's sort of that's another. Well, I'm a, I'm the son of a part time librarian, also a math teacher, but in in the, the later part of her career, she was a librarian. Um, and when she was a math teacher, when I was young, her best friend was my uh, junior high school librarian, and made me make a long list of every book I'd ever read <laughs> and such. And uh, my summers were largely spent at the library. Um, I guess the point, well, the point I was trying to make about libraries is, yeah, yeah, they're physical places with people who have devoted their time, if not their entire lives, to this culture and can tell you a lot if you ask them. And, you know, they're important because they're free and public and it's a, it remains, you know, a great part of our culture, the library system. I don't know, I haven't read too much about it lately. I remember when I was living in England, Alan Bennett wrote a, wrote a long piece about the library he went to as a boy, I think, in Manchester. And I think for a while, English libraries were under fire. I'm not sure about their status right now. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean who, libraries... who, would say, who would say a bad word about libraries? Well, I mean, people, they do get short shrift. I remember well, and the they... New York Public Library was under fire several years ago for losing lots of its books or moving them off-site, going very digital... The writer Caleb Crane wrote some very good examinations of this issue. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure where that stands right now. I have a Brooklyn Public Library branch right across from my house, which is where I go. That's very nice. Yeah. With libraries, there is this pressure to... I mean, it's it's funny because I feel like so many of the decisions about where technology is headed and what it is going to do are made by people who fundamentally don't understand it. Mm. And so with with like the public libraries in New York, I've noticed a lot have like little cafes mm -hmm. and there's room that could go to books, but yeah. then it's like they want a place for people to hang out, which is also what a library should do. It sure. should be a place to hang out. Yeah. So it's this weird push and pull and then this, you know, this push towards um digital stuff's e-books e well, you can get. The thing about, the e-book is interesting because for a while it seemed, and in some ways it still seems that digital culture is inevitable. Right. Right? Like, yes. like everything is going to go that way. And someday soon we'll be even more futuristic than Star Trek. Right. Right? I think a few years ago... I was having a drink with a book editor who said, ebooks have stabilized, it's over, nobody's worried anymore. And the fact is, like, phones and computers can never be total until we're in the singularity, which I don't think will ever <laughs> arrive. No. <laughs> yeah, and it would be bad. Yeah. It would suck it if would, it did it would actually be terrible, arrive. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, with the with the I would e miss my shoes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no one could buy clothes. Yeah. It'd be a disaster. Yeah. Um, but the with, economy would collapse. Yes. 
<laughs> well, it seems like it's headed that way anyway. So mm. it's, um, I don't know, what is actually the singularity? Maybe it's just <laughs> collapse of capitalism. Yeah. But with ebooks, so much, I mean, I briefly worked at a publishing company and I remember ebooks were they were priced so low yeah. that there was no way to support the entire infrastructure of what publishing companies are and what they do yeah and it's not just like the the amount that they were cut down to it wasn't just like oh this is what you're saving on cutting down trees like yeah. it was it was horrible and the consolidation of so many of these houses has to do with this because technology changes so much faster than culture does and what people are willing to do. And I don't know, I only like old people use iPads because they can't read the type. Yeah. Like it's not the future. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for people. Yeah. I mean, it's not I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's that is it's not the future that you think it is. Mm. Yeah, I'm ebooks are terribly convenient, but otherwise entirely unsatisfying, I think. Yeah. Um, particularly useful when something's out of print, you know, and also useful for things that are in the public domain. Yeah. I mean, you don't talk about this in your piece, but it is definitely something that impacts arts coverage of any medium is the tendency to not, not just interpret things through lists like the 15 most unforgettable last sentences in fiction. Yeah. Not, not just stuff like that. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a form. I mean, I guess you know, magazines have always done lists in order to impo impose the illusion of order right. on something. Yeah. And, the, and the illusion that things are finite. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's, it's a fiction. Right. Um, because literature is infinite nobody's read it all and it's you know although we have canons and syllabi uh nobody knows everything even not even george steiner right. or harold bloom i feel like looking around another if it is not a list yeah that is sort of becoming the the sort of the standard form of covering a new whatever a new film a new novel a new album there's this political sort of reading of it, but it's not in any sort of, the ideology is vague. It's in this very sort of generic, like, well, in this season of this show, that character is Donald Trump. Right. And in this film, you can read it as a parable. And that's obviously, that's always existed. Well, yeah, I mean, there in I, television has is very quick to pick up on, you know, very trendy ideological nuggets that are easily detachable. Right. And in the production and, is so much shorter than Yeah, I mean, film. to a certain extent, I actually think that phenomenon is interesting because it's interesting to see the way that that ideology is processed in the in the uh in the in the quickest way. And one of the reasons why I don't really discuss politics of that sort that much in the piece is because A, it would be a different piece because mm -hmm. it's a different set of issues. But B, more so because what I'm calling for is more criticism or ju just generally a more robust devotion to criticism on the part of um, mainstream publications 
is that criticism is the zone in which those political things should be contested. Mm-hmm. So whether you're for or against them, fight it out within the zone of criticism. Sure. And I guess what you're talking about is a the I, one of the things that the you know, I'm trying to you know, I guess like uh, you know, that adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's easy to point and say fascism parable for our times and just mm-hmm. point and say that. Yeah. Um whereas similarly it I I haven't seen this. Maybe it exists. You could do a a thorough reading of the way the showrunners or whatever they're called have adapted <laughs> that book and what they're trying to say about now and what they're getting wrong and whether having that's one of the shows that I've watched and sometimes it's fascism doesn't seem entirely fascistic it just seems like the the rulers are conflicted assholes right <laughs> but the 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 hallmark of prestige television is the conflicted mm. the conflicted asshole yeah, yeah. is he actually good I don't <laughs> can know. he be redeemed oh, yeah what's gonna happen yeah. yeah no I mean like when that expression is on a showrunner who maybe isn't super into politics mm. but just again is following a feed or just has like digesting a, the, the past six months of the new york times yes and Trump putting bad. it into the show yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly. like or and then that is received by a critic who or a writer who is just being like yeah i also think racism is bad but mm. i literally not i don't have any sort of understanding of politics or i think i do but i really don't we can all yeah. agree that this thing is bad this thing that is clearly bad is bad well I, I it's bad but i do think it's interesting to observe and especially interesting to observe from the distance of maybe 10 years or so oh sure right now like these but things, will it be even these, comprehensible these things, no these yeah no it, it will be i think i mean culture becomes dated in really interesting ways um and so you know, like I what it's an example of I think you tend to see this a lot in Vice magazine, like some young writer will will who's never heard of like Wayne's World will suddenly watch it and say, Oh my god, the nineties were so politically horrible. <laughs> um, and maybe they were, or you know, all of eighty I mean, I didn't like the eighties when they were happening, but uh a lot of that culture is kind of disgusting and revolting now yeah um like again i think it's a cyclical thing oh sure um and so taking time and and lingering over analyzing it is remains worthwhile the one of the projects one of the one of the directions this piece pointed me towards um uh because i was think reading George Tro and thinking about television is uh, the television critic Michael J. Arlen, mm-hmm. who was a TV critic for The New Yorker in the in the um, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, in addition to a writer of uh, many other books like uh, Passage to Ararat, which won the National Book Award. Um, 
but I went back and read his review of Dallas, (laughs) (laughs) which was, I mean, he's just analyzing a melodrama and kind of suspending questions of do I love it or do I hate it? And it's a thrilling piece of writing. He, he also used to write criticism in the form of fiction. He has a great essay called The Cable Revolution, which was in The New Yorker in like 1979 or 1980, in which the, the coming of cable to all televisions throughout, or many, I didn't have it when I was a kid, but many televisions throughout America is, is I think, kind of likened to the French Revolution or, and such. It's, it's a great piece of work. Yeah. Somebody like Trow, who mm-hmm. might not be a household name, or right. if he was a household name, it was several decades before now. Do you envision the role of the critic as somebody who is just trying to deal with now, or are they writing, they're pitching towards eternity? Well, it would be wonderful to pitch towards eternity every time, but as a working critic, I know that it doesn't, happen that way mm. um and especially if you're writing every week like i was for the past few years you're some weeks there's just like a book that seems like the right thing to write about this time around but is neither for the ages nor totally symptomatic or but then Doing the work of that regular reviewing does allow a critic to sit down and think, these are the tendencies. This is what's going on. I wrote a piece a few years ago about the fiction of the Obama era. Mm, And it was a piece I I wouldn't have been able to. I kind of took a taxonomical approach and just tried to describe uh, for different tendencies that seemed to me more prominent during, they were in a way that some of them were sort of permanent genres, but they'd come to more prominence um, during the eight years of the Obama administration than they had been. They, they weren't the sort of things you were seeing or hearing about a lot during the Bush administration. And so I couldn't have done that if I hadn't been reading new stuff every week mm-hmm. um for a working critic you want to do a mix of of both you've got to do the 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 more in the in the trenches fine grain stuff in order to see the big picture when when once in a while yeah no, no i yeah i mean i agree <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. <laughs>